The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox live from Davos. I'm Steve Sedgwick. And I'm Karen Cho. These are your headlines. So US markets getting a bump with the Dow on pace to break an eight-week losing streak. This despite the fact that Fed minutes indicate the central bank is open to hiking rates past neutral and potentially into restrictive territory. Elsewhere on this side of the Atlantic, the ECB governing council member Klaas Knott hints at a larger rate hike, and it could well happen in July. Until CNBC, he does not expect it to prompt a taper tantrum. Do you know the market is very fixated on a number, 25 or 50? Just to be very clear, 50 is not off the table at the July or September meeting. No, as far as I'm concerned, not. And uh, the way I read the blog of our president, it's clearly not off the table. Russia offers to repay dollar debt in rubles in a move likely seen as its first international default in over a century, while the central bank announces an extraordinary rate-setting meeting this morning. One of my favorite sayings is that if you see the light in the end of the tunnel, make sure it's not the light from an incoming trade. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba tells CNBC that Russia is blackmailing the world with its offer to release food supplies in exchange for dropping sanctions, saying more drastic measures are required to be taken against Moscow. The goal, the strategic purpose should be kill Russian exports, stop buying from Russia, stop allowing them to make money, which they then invest in the war machine that destroys, kills, rapes and tortures people in Ukraine. And I'm Juliana Tattlebaum. Also coming up on the show this morning, Elon Musk stumps up more of his own cash to get his $44 billion deal for Twitter over the line. But the Tesla boss also scrapping plans to use a margin loan secured against his stock in the EV maker. Well, very good morning, Jeff. Where's he gone? Where's he gone? It doesn't say that on the script, by the way. Oh, it doesn't? No, okay, right. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank okay, you. Have you enjoyed your week? It's been busy, hasn't it? It's been the busy. The shorter week has just made a really packed schedule, don't you think? Instead of it being stretched has out it been over shorter? the week. shorter? I thought we're, we're well, normal like a Tuesday to Friday, aren't we? It's about two days shorter, I don't know, I think. I've lost track, to be honest. But yeah, it's been great. Yeah, it's been loads going on. It has been fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have and you managed anything social? No, <laughs> you know me. You, Such a big trap. You just put the ball on the tee for me there, didn't you? You know what I do. I can't handle both. Can't handle work and the social. You? Bit of both, yes. Oh, well done, I mean, you, part yeah. of it is meeting and greeting. Yeah, and but the difference between you and I is if I do the social, I look like a, a dog dragged through a hedge backwards, where you do the social, you look that, effervescent. That may be a description of me this morning. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, it puts your battery to full, I can tell you. Um, look, this is interesting, I think. Uh, Fed officials have signalled that more uh, rate hikes of 50 basis points could well be necessary at the next couple of meetings if uh, inflation continues uh, to rage across the United States. The FOMC vowed to move expeditiously, that's a word that shouldn't be here on a Thursday morning, uh, to a neutral policy stance, adding that a restrictive position may become appropriate. May's hike was the Fed's largest in 22 years. I just, oh, well, actually, we're going to do a chat afterwards, so I'll carry on. Uh, the president of the uh, Dutch central bank, Klaas Knot, uh, told Mr. Cutmore here in Davos that a 50, but when he was still here, that a 50 basis point 
point rate hike uh, should be on the table when it begins lifting rates uh, as soon as next quarter and possibly as soon as July. A lot of it is energy, a lot of it is due to negative supply shocks. We, are for the difficult, we stand for the difficult task to disentangle the couple of negative supply shocks we've had from also very strong demand. And we have to respond to the demand side. The 33% you are mentioning is to a very large extent also a result of the negative supply shock. We know that that will be a temporary shock. There is not much we central bankers can do about energy price inflation, but you can and must hold us accountable for avoiding that that temporary bout of high inflation becomes entrenched. And that is why I am more focused on indicators of underlying inflation. And that is the one to follow. And that will also affect inflation expectations going forward. But you know, the market is very fixated on a number, 25 or 50. Just to be very clear, 50 is not off the table at the July or September meeting. No, as far as I'm concerned, not. And uh, the way I read the blog of our president, it's clearly not off the table. A little bit of relief on the market yesterday. Don't forget there's been this tech route, turmoil around consumer discretionary, retail names, and a bit of a bounce back in that sector yesterday. You could see there was some relief in the updates from the latest retailers to disclose in contrast to that target Walmart story. I mean, you had Nordstrom out with numbers yesterday, uh, Dick Sporting Goods, brighter numbers here really helping out that sector. And you could see the Dow up six tenths of a percent, the S&P almost one percent to the upside, and the Nasdaq also rallying 1.5 percent higher. Tesla, the big stock leading there. There's been a little bit of criticism lately about the distraction still from Tesla's main game around this Twitter story and uh, the stock bouncing back. But uh, a lot of destruction in the share price and the, the value of that company. So it was a day to the upside, though, pushing back against the recent direction. Let's take a more, look more broadly at Treasuries. And we certainly have declined over the course of the week, but also the month now, well and truly off the May highs that we've witnessed. So you can see at the level uh, that we're trading on the 10-year, 2.74. Don't forget, we've been most of the month early on sitting very close to that 3% mark. So it is a, a slight pullback at this stage and perhaps an indication about views on longer term. Term growth. The dollar, as we take a look at some of the implications there with a slightly lower yield, let's just see how we're trading on the dollar crosses this morning. The early trade is a slightly firmer one. We're at 102.14. And uh, a look at uh, Eurozone yields as well. Often we've seen a link between treasuries every time that tenure has risen in the United States. Eurozone yields have also been trapped in the same direction, of effectively going higher. But you can see this morning we're lower here, 094 on the 10-year bund in France. We're trading 1.47, so just below the 1.5% mark. Still over 2% on the Spanish paper and the yield there. The Italian 10-year is trading below 3%. Still fairly stubbornly high, I must say. It hasn't really slipped that much uh, off the, the 3.2, which was the high-water mark. Yeah, but, but I mean... <laughs> And let's just reference this conversation in line with the fact that uh, the ECB board member from Italy, uh, Fabio Panetta, is saying we should risk, uh, avoid the risk of a normalisation tantrum. I mean, even if you just disseminate that conversation, you've basically got an ECB member from Italy, and there's a very good reason why I'm mentioning the country, saying uh, a normalisation tantrum. So what, to get to something that is normal, mm. we are going to have a panic as we get there as well. Uh, yeah. and and basically, I think what Fabio Panetta is saying is let's not have a prescriptive level where we 
50 uh, European inflation rates at, which I will hasten to add are still at negative 0.5 for a deposit rate in a zone where the inflation is anywhere between 8 and 10%, depending by your measure as well. Uh, you mentioned the Italian paper at 2.94 as well. Well, there's a very good reason for that, because people, despite the uh, words we have from Mario Draghi, despite the confidence we have from the European Central Bank, the Italian debt levels are greater than they have been at any stage, at any stage, in the Eurozone debt crisis, mm-hmm. uh, in the immigration crisis in the middle of the last decade, uh, in the COVID crisis, and now, of course, in the war in Ukraine as well. So let us just remember <laughs> that there's always been a reason not to lower Italian debt. There has always been a reason to pull debt upon debt. So now we have Italian debt to GDP significantly north of 150 Yes. I mean, it's double the reference rate, so isn't it? The 60% when you say that we the talk rate about at the European level. 2.9%. <laughs> I say to you, Karen, it is still half and then some of what it was at the peak of the debt zone crisis when yeah. it actually touched around about 7% when Tremonti was in the finance ministry. So I understand the wobbles from Fabio Panetta. Uh, mm. I don't necessarily agree with them, though. A couple of points to pick up on. I mean, as you talk about, is the rate too elevated as you look at the yield here in Europe? It goes to the point as to whether there could be a recession around the corner. And the views, I think, this week from a lot of Americans on the mountain here is that Europe is in a bit of a pickle, that it's facing a, a it's series a lovely, of issues. beautifully English way of saying it from an Australian. <laughs> bit of a pickle. Right. Got the war in Ukraine, which seems to have the biggest ramifications for Europe because it's this You've got now an ECB that's finally uh, getting on the front foot, trying to catch up with the rest of the central banks. It's actually moving on rates. As we talk about normalisation, we're talking about getting to zero. So that's a a different type of normalisation versus what you're seeing in other uh, jurisdictions, namely in the United States, where 1% almost, you know, we're at that mark and going higher. So getting to zero is quite a different context about spooking the market, isn't it? I mean, that's that's quite stunning. Getting to 2%, which would... I'm sure give uh, Fabio Panetta even greater wobbles, would mean that we still have enormous negative rates. And do you know what? I, we, we haven't had this conversation on air for a while, but mm. for those economists out there who look at core inflation because they think that the volatility of food and energy is just not worth looking at, well, I would suggest you leave your desks in the square mile uh, in the middle of Manhattan, uh, wherever you may all be in Brussels, and actually go into the street and have a look at real inflation that real people are paying as well. And I think you'll find it's significantly north of 2% for their energy, for their transportation, for their food, for their taxes, for their interest rates as well. So real people in the world who are being told by the same economists, by the way, to have pay restraint are actually paying significantly north of 2% when we have a negative 0.5 deposit rate at the ECB as well. Inflation is rife. We spent a little bit of time looking at the European economy through the lens of the Netherlands yesterday. We had a series of speakers, uh, right? The and Netherlands has this is a country, 10% right? Almost 10%. Percent inflation rate. It has come down slightly. And this was interesting as to whether we've seen the turning point. It came off by about 0.1 of a percent in the most recent data series. And that is the point. Are we starting to slow the level of growth? But as we talk about slowing it, we're still at a very elevated rate and getting it down from high single digits to a low single digit level. You sort of ask the question how much time? is that going to take and what type of policy setting is going to be required. So I think it's the pace of change and just how quickly it can be achieved with monetary policy. But back to this whole point about not spooking the market with normalisation. If you think about some of the optimism that we're seeing here in Europe, a lot of it is animal spirits in the C-suite 
Capital markets are open for a lot of European companies. They've been tapping the markets, raising debt, uh, getting the best conditions they've been able to achieve in recent times, embarking upon some M&A, embarking upon investments and transitions around digital and around green. We've heard that from just about every major corporate. So they are sort of flush with cash. They've had a very strong demand story on the back of the pandemic, and they're setting up for what they hope is a good future. But this is in contrast to how the Americans see it. They think that there are so many challenges and hurdles from here. If capital markets turn in Europe, that begs the question as to whether corporates become a little bit more pessimistic in Europe as well. Well, I think you make a very good point, but I think one point you've just made is the fact that there is an abundance of liquidity coming from fiscal support and from COVID recovery plans. There is an abundance of support for corporations who are looking to expand their CapEx and OpEx via liquidity in the capital markets as well. Uh, so with that as a backdrop, what, what, is, what is the problem with actually tightening, let's say, to the magnificently high interest rate of zero over at the ECB. Well, one of the issues, and I raised this yesterday, was that you've got all of these ministers talking about monetary and fiscal policy working together. But in my view, if you've got monetary policy normalising, which is effectively tightly going up, you want to take a little bit out of the economy to tame inflation. It doesn't help having fiscal policy pouring money into the economy, stimulating. It is not working hand in hand, which is what they want. Let me ask you a very personal question. (laughs) (laughs) need to put a little banner up for this i think could be anything could it (laughs) has your fiscal burden has your taxation burden gone down significantly stayed where it is or gone up significantly over the last couple of years i imagine Uh, it's probably gone up well i know exactly what it's done (laughs) i don't know your salary but i know what my fiscal burden has done whether it be on my domestic taxes whether it be on my income taxes Mm -hmm. whether it be on my energy taxes uh, i can assure you that my fiscal burden has gone up significantly over the last couple of years at a time when rates are going up so where fiscal and monetary tightening seem to be happening in unison despite actually the money from that apparently going back into the economy uh, and into COVID recovery plans. Well the consumption tax has gone up hasn't it because prices have gone up. <laughs> we need to push on and uh, for more from our interview with the Dutch Central Bank Governor and ECB Hawk you can check out cnbc.com On another note, Moscow says it will repay dollar-denominated debt in rubles and offer a conversion to the original currency at a later date. The announcement is likely to be viewed as a default by investors and comes after a U.S. license which allowed Russia to pay debt holders through U.S. banks expired. Russia has not defaulted on overseas debt since 1917. Meanwhile, the central bank is holding an extraordinary meeting today and is expected to cut rates with an announcement due out at 9.30 CET. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleva has told CNBC's Hadley Gamble that there is no room for concessions in his country's war with Russia and accused Vladimir Putin of using global shortages and Black Sea port blockages as blackmail. Hadley spoke to Kaleva here at the World Economic Forum and asked him where negotiations stand. You know, Russia is conducting a large-scale offensive in Donbass. And this is the real, you know, you can recall any movie about World War II, and you can easily imagine what kind of battle is taking place now in Donbas. Tanks, artillery, combat helicopters, air attacks, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, everything is involved. When uh, you are conducting an operation like this, you basically say no to negotiations. If Russia had preferred uh, talks to uh, war, they would have behaved differently. Yeah. Walk us through what you believe you need to win this war. Where is it coming from and are you getting enough support? I'm talking about from the United States, from Europe, in terms of weapons and money. When you're at war, you literally need everything. 
everything. And uh, uh, of course, the key issues now, uh, the situation in terms of supplies is, weapon supplies is much better compared to where uh, we were even a month ago. And it's worth commending the United States uh, for taking the lead on mobilizing international support and helping us with the supply of artillery, for example, and other weapons. And this Rammstein format set, by, uh, set up by Secretary of Defense, it's working. So big thanks to the Biden administration, to Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken for making it all happen. But there is never a moment in the war when you can say, okay, we did our best, this is it. As long as the war continues, it means that more needs to be done. So now we are facing a, a big issue with multiple, <clears throat> with the lack, critical lack of multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, Russia has plenty of them, and they cover squares of our territory with fire, killing and destroying everything. So we need these weapons as soon as possible. We are desperately waiting for them to arrive. Uh, on the financial front, uh, our economy is suffering more from uh, the Russian uh, destruction and Russian attacks than the Russian economy suffers from sanctions. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that sanctions are useless, but as long as Russia makes money on selling oil and gas, their pockets are pretty full. So we also need macrofinancial assistance to help the country running, to keep the country afloat. And uh, the, third, the third element is actually, again, sanctions. Uh, as I mentioned, um, Russia feels pretty comfortable with current oil and gas prices. And uh, we have to seriously reconsider the sanctions policy. Do you they, believe you're making any progress on that in terms of your European counterparts? Hungary obviously being the major holdout when it comes to sanctioning Russian oil for now. There, is, there, there, are, uh, you know, there are two ways to approach sanctions. The first one is to say, okay, we will focus on oil and uh, seek ways how to uh, stop the purchase of uh, Russian oil. There is another way. You can do a more in-depth analysis and come to a conclusion, for example, that the vast majority of Russian oil sold uh, to the global market is carried by, by maritime uh, means, so by vessels. So if you sanctions, uh, if you tell shipping industry that everyone carrying Russian oil anywhere in the world will face problems, that will mean a big, uh, a big issue for... So you believe they should Putin. sanction the shipping industry? My, my message now, my mess, I was very constructive and engaging and always uh, trying to understand concerns of partners when it came to sanctions. But now, after three months of fighting, my message is very simple. Kill Russian exports. Accept some critical, uh, critical items that the West needs. But we need a broad strategy aimed not at... Uh, blocking this or this. But the, the goal, the, the strategic purpose should be kill Russian exports. Stop buying from Russia. Stop allowing them to make money, which they then invest in the war machine that destroys, kills, rapes, and tortures people in Ukraine. Yeah, an excellent but uh, sobering interview there Hadley conducted with uh, Mr. Kaleba of Ukraine. Uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has told, uh, me, well me actually, uh, that support for Ukraine is as strong today as on the first day of Russia's invasion over three months ago. And that the West stands united as ever 
even after differences over energy sanctions and NATO expansion. I called up with Mr. Rutter here in Davos and asked him whether he stands uh, on comments made, well, actually disagrees with comments made by Henry Kissinger, that Ukraine must ultimately cede territory if it wants a diplomatic ceasefire deal. It's almost impossible to say that you disagree with Henry Kissinger. But I'm afraid that on television now I have to officially declare that I disagree with Henry Kissinger if that is the statement he made. Uh, for us, the territorial integrity, the sovereignty of Ukraine stands above else. And it is up to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and his prime minister and his team to decide how they will conduct the peace uh, uh, negotiations we hope will, will start so one day. So, Prime Minister, let me be very clear about this. The territorial integrity of Ukraine starts with the invasion of Crimea and the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, at the yes. time when I was in Kiev. Uh, so, until Crimea is back in Ukrainian sovereignty, relations with Russia cannot be as they were. Well, and that's up to Zelensky and his team to decide. He has uh, given out a statement somewhat early, I think somewhere in March, uh, that he wants Russia to retreat to the boundaries of the 23rd of February. Uh, and I'm not going to second guess Zelensky. I mean, these guys are under a huge attack from Russia. We try to help them, mm -hmm. but we cannot because we do not want a NATO-Russia confrontation. We cannot help them with uh, with military personnel on the ground. We can help them with military gear. But given the fact that they're under, under this huge pressure, it's not up to me to decide for him what to do. My understanding from that uh, statement from Zelensky was that he wants Russia to move back to the 23rd of February boundaries. That would then mean that Crimea would not go back into um, uh, Ukrainian hands. But again, that's really up to Ukraine to decide. You mentioned about the investigations into war crimes as well, and of course it's, it, it will be in The Hague if ever there are trials. On yeah, the ICC, uh, the International Criminal Court, is based in The Hague. Can you ever deal with Vladimir Putin again, knowing what we know, suspecting what we suspect, suspect about what has happened in Ukraine uh, and has been directed from the Kremlin? It's extremely difficult to picture what that relationship could be if hopefully one day this whole aggression stops uh, and there is some form of normality. What that would mean for the relationships between Europe, the US, the rest of the world and Russia. Uh, the fact is that Russia will not go away. It's there. It is the biggest country in the world, 10 time zones. Uh, the economy is not that big. It is the, it is the added sum of, of the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, but in size, in military power, it is, of course, a, a world player. So it is very difficult to, to foresee that. And that will also depend, of course, on what a peace agreement would look like if it ever comes to that, including how we deal with the war crimes. Um, but the fact is also that Russia is not away, going away. It's there. Mark Rutte there. Right, coming up on today's show, we're going to talk pandemic preparedness with the uh, CEPI CEO, Richard Hatcher, in just a few moments' time. Plus, we'll also hear from the Dassault System Chief Operating Officer, Pascal Daloz, and Enquest boss, Amjad Zezu. That is coming up later on this hour. We're also going to speak to Eric Rondelat from Signify, and I'm very interested to hear what the ESM Managing Director, actually outgoing, Klaus Regling, has to say. Palantir Executive Vice President Josh Harris, uh, we'll talk about privacy there, and the Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov uh, coming up on the show.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. The UK has confirmed seven more cases of monkeypox, bringing the nationwide total to 77. The outbreak comes hot on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic. Comparisons the WHO have been keen to discourage. Its director for global infectious hazard preparedness urged people not to make a, quote, mountain out of a molehill. This is members of the organization formally agreed to revamp its funding model, which could see obligatory fees rise to up to 50 percent of its budget by the end of the decade. Uh, the Swiss pharmaceutical group Roche says it has developed three PCR tests that can detect monkeypox in partnership with its subsidiary TIB Molbiol. Uh, Roche said the test kits can detect viruses in the wider orthopox virus group as well as monkeypox specifically. The company says the kits can assess the spread of the virus and help monitor the potential impacts of treatments and vaccines. Well, let's get to Richard Hatchett, who's the CEO of CEPI, which stands for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Uh, Richard, really nice to see you. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, um, look, um, before we move specifically on to monkeypox, I have a more general question. The, the speed with which academia, business, uh, NGOs, uh, and indeed governments move forward with uh, vaccines was historic and quite stunning and have helped, of course, by new mRNA technologies as well. Will we ever be as unprepared as we were for COVID ever again? Well, I think it's important to understand that we were actually more prepared for a coronavirus pandemic than we are for most potential pandemics from other viral families. So in, unless we make investments in R&D, and, and that's what my organization, CEPI, is a, an organization that focuses on R&D for vaccines uh, against epidemic diseases, unless we make those investments, make them systematically and, and across the different viral families, we could be less prepared for future threats. But, but just, to, just to follow up on my point, and look, saying that the vaccination program has been a success when so many and in the millions of people have died, it, it seems almost wrong to say. But the fact of the matter is millions of lives have been saved by the speed of which vaccinations got out onto the market and the speed of which the R&D and the financing for that came forward again as well. Why are you saying specifically for coronaviruses that we were prepared, but for others we're potentially not? So, so before, before the coronavirus, before COVID emerged, we had invested in understanding how to develop vaccines against SARS, which obviously is closely related, sure. and against MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. And we had basically cracked the code. We knew which part of the virus to target, how to manipulate that target to expose it to the immune system and produce effective vaccines. When COVID emerged, literally within 48 hours of the virus sequences being posted, Moderna and, and the NIH in the U.S. had designed a new vaccine. And so we were able to move very rapidly to initiate the development of that vaccine. In fact, the last time we met in person at Davos in, in 2020, uh, my organization, CEPI, provided a contract to Moderna just 11 days after the sequences were released. And what we were providing that contract to support was actually the production of clinical trial material. That's how fast we were able to move into clinical trials. And it was all because of that prior investment in understanding how to make vaccines against 
coronaviruses on the mRNA technology. As you take us back in history and compare and contrast the last Davos, it does jump out to me that people were not that concerned about coronavirus then. They were concerned for the Chinese, thought it was a major issue for the mainland market, but not really for anyone else. Monkeypox, I think people are split that they think it could be a major issue. Others think, well, it's not really. How do you view monkeypox? Is it a, a big risk to, say, Western populations at this point and beyond? Well, the first thing I would say is, is this is the first time that we have gathered again in Davos since the 2020 uh, meeting, and we find ourselves facing another infectious disease threat. I, th I think that is not, um, we, we should understand what, what that signifies, which is the world is beginning to move around again and infectious diseases are beginning to move around with us. Monkeypox is a, th this is a concerning epidemic. Monkeypox is a very different disease than COVID. It is not spread through respiratory transmission in the same way. So as a, it does not present the kind of global threat that many of us immediately recognize that COVID presented, but it does exemplify the risks that infectious diseases present in the modern world. I know there is a push to ensure that there are vaccines available within 100 days when it comes to some of the, the major threats that we face. But what sort of 100-day window are we talking about? 100 days when it arrives in a, a Western democracy or 100 days when it becomes evident in a part of the world somewhere where it's threatening a population? Well, this, is, this has been an important part of, of, of CEPI's proposed strategy for significantly reducing epidemic and pandemic risk, accelerating vaccine development. Steve, you mentioned how can, how can we say that our vaccine response was a success when you know, potentially up to 15 million people have died. I don't think we can. I think we can look at what was done in 2020 as unprecedented but insufficient. So we do have to compress those vaccine development timelines. What we're talking about when we talk about 100 days is um, 100 days from the decision to initiate vaccine development to vaccines being available for use. And that means that we have to do we have to make significant investments in preparedness before the new disease emerges if we're going to be able to execute that fast and coming back to monkeypox um, you know my my organization uh, has argued that the preparedness investments that we need to make is is to understand for other viral families in the same way that we did for coronavirus as we were discussing earlier how to develop vaccines in advance and I think monkeypox is a perfect illustration of the value of that strategy because we actually have vaccines against smallpox that were developed against a disease that doesn't even exist that we know work against monkeypox. And we have antivirals that were developed to protect against smallpox that will work against monkeypox. So we have the tools that we need just as this uh, epidemic you know, has exploded. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.